0: Well good morning. Are you excited about today? Glad to see your excitement and the, the buzz around the, around the auditorium. As I'd ask the question, when was the last time that you heard any form of teaching from the Song of Songs? Has anyone here had the privilege of going through the Song of Songs in, in any form in a church at all? Right, Dean has. Okay, that explains a lot, Dean. I'm pleased to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's something that uh, is not—we don't often turn to this book. And uh, you know, the reality is that uh, over the past weeks, um, there may be some major questions on on your lips. I've heard some of these questions. You know, why are we studying this book? Why study the Song of Solomon? You know, after all, what's uh, this book really got to do with uh, church life? You know, this book really doesn't talk about a famous Old Testament character at all, does it? It's not like a Joseph or a Daniel or a David. You know, what am I going to learn from this book? And, uh, yeah, really, how does that relate to the New Testament? What What? masses of bits of theology can I grab and grapple with from the Song of Songs? We know they are great questions, because in those questions you're saying, really, okay, what is the relevance? How does this book relate to the here and now? How does it relate to me here in 2015? How does it relate to me if I'm married? How does it relate to me if I'm single? How does it relate to me if I'm divorced? How does it relate to me if I'm widowed? These are all really pertinent questions. And they're good questions. And I think at the heart of those types of questions is your desire as a congregation, as followers of Jesus, to be encouraged, to be exhorted from God's word in a way that is relevant, in a way that really puts feet to your faith. And I hope that's your desire as you come in here week in, week out. As we open the word of God, we are a church who stands firm on what God's word tells us. Because you know what our greatest act of worship is, don't you? Our greatest act of worship is to allow the Spirit of God to convict us through the Word of God so we can draw closer to our Lord and walk a life that is worthy to Him. You know, our greatest act of worship isn't the songs we sing. Our greatest act of worship isn't the prayers we pray. Our greatest act of worship isn't the way we relate to external need and and those sorts of things. Our greatest act of worship is our obedience to God's word and his call on our lives. Because when we're obedient to God's word, it changes us and it transforms us. The Spirit of God grabs hold of these words and makes it alive and active. That's why God's word says in Hebrews 4 verse 12, it says these wonderful words, that the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why we study God's word. Very interesting verbs as you look through this verse. You'll see firstly that God's word is what? Living and active. We all know this from Sunday school, this verse. God's word is living and active. I would suggest to you God's word is only living and active when you read it. It's not something you place on the shelf over here. Close it. And say, that's now living and active. It's transforming me. It's imitating some truth to me from one position to another. That's not the way it's living and active. God's word is living and active when you pick it up and you read it and you apply what the spirit of God convicts you over. That's the greatest act of worship. It's also interesting, isn't it, because in that verse it describes God's word as sharper than any two-edged sword. Who hasn't in this building gone to the word of God, seen something that you need to work on, and it really just cuts? You think, oh, the word of God tells me not to gossip, not to be anxious. And yet, you struggle with those two aspects. But as you wrestle with God's work by His Spirit, He will transform you. And that's the wonderful news of God's living, active Word. And it's not only that, it actually gets into the soul, and it gets into the joints and into the marrow. As you read through this verse in Hebrews 4, 12, it's, there's nothing left out. God's Word is all-encompassing. Designed To what? To discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of your heart. That's why it's living and active. The word of God is about transformation of the heart. It's about transforming your heart so that your actions... Glorify God. Another famous verse on, on Scripture and the importance of God's word is in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it talks about, well, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in Righteousness. So all scripture, the entire 66 books of the canon is profitable. But you know, in the back of our minds you think, yeah, but I'm not sure about Leviticus or Song of Solomon or Lamentations. What about that Hosea character? How would you deal with that? Been told to go and marry a prostitute and let her be unfaithful, then take her back, that's not really relevant, is it? God's word tells us that all scripture is relevant. All scripture is profitable. It teaches us. It trains us. It corrects us. Because that's the power of the living, active word of God. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the word of God has that power? I hope you do. Because otherwise what we do here on Sunday mornings is a waste of time and investment, is it not? Because we are instructed to live by the book. And that's what we want to do. You know, who hasn't read through the Song of Solomon here? Has anyone not read the Song of Solomon? Come on, be honest. Okay. Who's read it sort of like on a spot fire analysis type way? You know, like, oh, that's a bit of a funny verse. I'll read that and I'll have a giggle about that imagery. Who's done that? Yeah. you. Yeah. Know, how often have you wanted to describe a special person in your life with, a, with a, a phrase like, your nose is like the Tower of Babel, you know? There's some interesting imagery in this book. And we giggle at the imagery. But you've got to realise that, that this book was written a very long time ago, 1100 BC, and that's in the days when a, a flock of sheep was considered to be quite Beautiful. That's in the days where if your legs were described as the the trees of Lebanon, that was actually quite seductive. (laughs) You know, there's a whole lot of imagery in here that uh, we wrestle to understand in 2015 because we're not placed in the the courts of Solomon in the time of great extravagance and opulence throughout uh, the ancient Near East. And this is the poetry and the imagery that we will have to wrestle with. You see, as a leadership team, we think it's really important to teach the whole Bible. We think it's a miss if we say, let's just put that particular book aside because it's not relevant. Because as Second Timothy stated, everything is profitable that's in God's word. Why? Because God is the author. In the essence, this love song, this, this poetry is not authored and penned by a poet. Yes, it is in one sense, but the reality is that man or woman was moved by the Spirit of God, carried along to pen these words for our instruction. Second Peter talks about that. You know, Just like the wind of the sails on a boat carry a boat along, so the Spirit of God carried authors who wrote these things along. To pen these words of truth. You see, we think it's very profitable in today's culture to talk about the song songs. Because we live in a time like no other time in the history of this world where the areas of sex, marriage, and intimacy are being eroded at an alarming rate. sure you would have heard from this pulpit about the carnality of, of, of towns like Corinth back in Jesus' time. I'll tell you what, they've got nothing on what's going on here and now in the 21st century. Now in the 1950s, the sexual revolution started. And with that, our whole view of these God-given gifts of sex and intimacy has changed. And inside the church, we're not immune. Why aren't we immune? Because we live in this culture, we see the images every day, and we are tempted by the flesh. You know, the rise of... Information technology and the way we access information and the materialism associated with marketing campaigns and images of erotica and pleasure are constantly bombarding our society. As you walk through the supermarket shelves, you'll see images on the supermarket shelf that... A design to arouse. A design to change your view about God's given design for sex and intimacy. At the touch of a button you can receive an image on your phone or on your iPad or on your computer. They can absolutely just play with your mind. They can feed lust, feed desire that is so far from God's truth that it will be devastating. We all know of stories, don't we, inside churches where faithful men of God have fallen because of the lust of the flesh, because of the entrapment of pornography because of illicit relationships that are not in God's design. So as we enter into this book of Song of Songs, it is incredibly relevant. Our heart and our desire is to give you a view of what God has designed as good. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and you read these verses. It says this. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. That's Adam, Genesis two twenty one. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, Whoa, man. No, I didn't really say that. I think if I was Adam, I might have said that. All right? If God in his perfect glory created the perfect woman, surely Adam's response would have been, Whoa, man. Well, that's a bit of transliteration. The real Hebrew doesn't say that, but here we go. The man said, This is at last as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He shall be called woman. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, this is the command. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Why? Because that's the way God designed it. This mutual intimacy, this this union of man and woman is designed to be beautiful. And this is what the Song of Songs explores, as we will see. And this is why we think we need to tune our hearts and minds to God's inspired word on these issues of sex, intimacy, and love. Now, this morning's going to be a little different in that I'm going to use today to give you a general introduction, an overview, a bit more like a lecture on the Song of Songs. I'm going to use the time to lay a foundation because over the next three weeks, we'll dive more into the book. We'll have a look at these issues in in more depth over the following three Sundays. But today, I really want to just draw a picture for you. Lay a foundation of the importance as to why we're studying this book, which I've started to do here. What interpretation and method we're going to use as we study this book. And then answer the question, well, so what? So why should we? So that's what we're going to spend the next... Uh, 20 or so minutes, just doing a, a broad brush overview for you. Because as was noted, as I asked the question, how many have studied the Song of Songs in, in this particular audience? Very few, right? So if I was to say to you, well, what does it mean? I would imagine out of the 300 people we've got sitting in here, we'd get 250 different versions. So we need to lay a foundation of how we're going to attack and approach the book. So if you'd like to turn with me to the Song of Solomon. It's bang smack in the middle of the Bible. After Ecclesiastes, we, we have the Song of Solomon. That's the, that's our standard English title that we give this book. Probably a more correct title would be The Song of Songs. Uh, The Hebrew Bible tends to call it the Song of Songs. And you read right in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. So that gives a pretty good idea in the superscript of this particular book of what type of literature it is. It's a song. It could be also determined as the best song or the finest song, the finest best song of songs. If you were of uh, Latin descent, you would have this very sexy title called Cantonells. The Latin version of the Bible called the Song of Songs, Cantanelles. So, you know, I think that there is some merit in that because after today's sermon, if you want to go home, husband and wife, and read through the Song of Songs, you can say, hey, hey darling, let's go read the Cantonells. It's got a really romantic, poetical view to it, hasn't it? Is it not? So you know the Song of Songs, uh, the Song of Solomon, the Canticles, the best, the finest of songs are all titles that could be given uh, to this book. Uh, there are certain views on who wrote it. Uh, just because the subscript says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, doesn't necessarily mean Solomon wrote it. It could have been written for Solomon. Okay, But we're not told throughout the book actually who wrote it. There is no real clear indication. Uh, the only thing you could probably indicate here is that somebody with an amazing uh, gift for imagery and metaphor and a poet has written it. Uh, when was it written? I think if we move over to uh, one of the primary I think proofs for the date of writing would be Song of Songs 6, verse 4. Now, obviously, this is going to cause some problems being in New Zealander every time I reference uh, chapter 6. Okay. You know what I'm saying, don't you? I'm saying a number. All right. I'm not referring to an axe, or I'm not referring to part of the song. I'm referring to a reference, number 6. Okay. Uh, verse 4 says this. As the man starts talking about his beautiful bride. He blurts out these wonderful metaphors. uh, You are beautiful as Tizah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes and have come from the washing, all of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. You can get a a little bit of the imagery coming through as this song of admiration, as we'll come to know it, says, Part of the song of songs is made up of many songs and this is a a song of admiration as the the husband looks at his wife and says, man, you're just like a sheep (laughs) or a goat. It's just wonderful. Try it sometimes, guys. Try it. But what has this got to do with the dating of the book? You may say, well, the very first verse I read, we talk about two cities, Tizah and Jerusalem. The woman is likened to the beauty of both those cities. Now, the city Tizah, we don't actually know a lot about because we don't read a lot about it. We know a lot about Jerusalem as the holy city. But Tizah was the... Uh, a city in the mountains of Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, which was slightly north of Jerusalem, which was noted for its beauty. It was captured by uh, Joshua and then allocated to Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh in Joshua 17. It was the third capital of the northern kingdom. You know how after Solomon's time, the kingdom got split north to south. Ten tribes went north, went on a Jeroboam, the rest were south on the, G, uh, the other G. I uh, can't remember. But what we know is that the northern kingdom made Tiszar their capital city right through until Omri, the reign of Omri, which was uh, somewhere around 885 to 874 B.C., so this city was a significant city when you talk about Israel. It would be like saying Melbourne and Sydney, right? Two major cities in in Australia. Sorry for all those who come from Brisbane, but I'll use Melbourne and Sydney as an example. This is the same way that, the, that he's saying, well, this city and that city. So the very nature of knowing what those cities were like would tend to suggest that this love song, this poetry was written around that time, somewhere from Solomon's reign through to Omri's reign. So around that 300-year window an early writing. Another major dating, not dating as in man and woman dating, but as dating as in when this book was written, all right, got that because I don't want to get these metaphors confused. So another dating uh, issue is that um, this song is very similar to the Egyptian love poetry of the ancient Near East, which was written in the in the time period of 1300 to 1100 BC. I won't um, give you some quotes from Egyptian love poetry because if you think the Song of Songs is erotic. You really shouldn't read Egyptian love poetry. Okay, so I just give that warning. So don't start Googling Egyptian love poetry. Okay, and uh, but it gives us a pretty solid feeling that this book was written in the time of Solomon, it reigned uh, during this time. Now, I reckon no other Old Testament book has had more various interpretations than the Song of Songs. So, we're going to look at just a a few brief ones and then we're going to land on the one we're going to use here. There's probably five to eight different major mainstream interpretations of this song. For instance, um, in Jewish literature, they take the Songs of Songs as being a picture of the love between Yahweh and Israel throughout Israel's history. So, for instance, I take the first part of the song as the Exodus. And Sinai and the conquest, which is a fairly interesting reading of the first three chapters. They would take chapters 3 to chapters 5, just about the beauty of the building of Solomon's temple. They would take um, chapters 5 through to 6 and 11 as Israel's sin and exile. And uh, chapters 6 to 7, they would take it as being the rebuilding and return after the exile. And then they would look at the final chapter as being the dispersion of the Jews under Roman uh, rule and the expectation of the Messiah. So in Jewish allegory, because this is what we're talking about here, we're talking about allegory, they're taking this text and they're allegorizing it, saying, well, it must have something to do with redemptive history or... Uh, even an element of future promises. That's the way we'll interpret it. Now, this interpretation really didn't start happening until about the 8th century A.D. amongst Jewish scholars. So prior to that, they had a different view. And it's hard to tell what that might have been. But it wasn't steeped in what we call allegory. And I'll talk about allegory, because as Christians, we've done the same thing. From about 300 A.D., We've taken this song of songs because we're a little bit embarrassed by the explicit nature of some of the metaphors and things. We just allegorize it. And we say, well, this song must be this and it must be that and it must be this and it must be that. For instance, the major allegory that comes through during that period is that this song is about the love between Christ and the church. It's a metaphor for the bride of Christ. How often have we sung the song I won't sing it for you. I will say the words. You know, my beloved is mine and I am his and his banner over me is love. He lifts me up in the banqueting table and his banner over me is love. Did you guys sing that here? Yeah, we used to sing it in New Zealand too. For life of me, I could never figure out what it meant. It seemed to be a little bit of a perverse view of Christ's love for the church in the context of reading the song. It's called allegory. For instance, if you were to allegorize the Song of Songs, and we have done this uh, through Christian commentators throughout the years, the kisses that are referred to in the Song of Songs are what? Do you know? Well, the kisses are clearly got to be the word of God. The dark sin of the girl, it's dark sin, the dark skin of the girl in Chapter one, verse five, clearly is a sin. That's the allegory we take. Her breasts. Well, that clearly relates to the the uh, the church's nurturing doctrine. You know, as you nurse on the breast, so the church will nurse doctrine. That's uh, you know, Song of Songs at its best. Her two lips. Well, that 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 really gets kind of tricky because that has to be the law and the gospel. And the army with banners, well, if we allegorize it, then um, you know, that's, that's the church as the enemy of Satan. Other examples include the mystical type of allegory where it focuses on the love between Christ and the individual soul. Some have even gone to as far as to say, well, this actually is a song that is of a love between Christ and the Virgin Mary. That's perverse. Some have interpreted it as a mystery of the union between the individual soul and the divine. So my question is, is an allegory the right way to interpret the Song of Songs? I would clearly come out on the side, no. And I'll give you reasons why. Sure, in the Bible, allegory is used. We can't dispute that fact. If you go to Judges 9, you read about an allegory of trees, etc. that um, one of the judges uses. You go to Isaiah 5 and you will read of an allegory. Actually, let's go to Isaiah 5 because it's a good example of what allegory is. We've got time to do it. Isaiah five. Seven verses Isaiah five. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of the stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked at and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, are inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. As you read through that, I won't read it all, but as you read those seven verses, what is uh, uh, interesting about the allegory is you know it's an allegory. You know that the vineyard and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and God are all tied up and it's, it's a known allegory. You read that in Galatians chapter 4, we did a couple of years ago, as. Paul talks about this is an allegory between Hagar and Jerusalem, the slave and the free. Scripture indicates that when it is allegory, and that's okay. And it's clearly marked. Song of Songs is not like that. It's not clearly marked as an allegory of anything. So let's not interpret it that way. So I think we need to really think about this. We need to distinguish between allegory and allegorization. Those examples I gave you of the kiss being the word of God, the black skin being sin, that's allegorization. And it's dangerous when it comes to biblical interpretation. There's no method in it. I'll tell you why. Because because what you can do as an interpreter, if you apply allegorization... You can make the imagery of the Song of Songs really mean anything with no foundational truth behind it. And what you start doing is as you allegorise, you actually start taking the text to mean something that you've put in your own mind with your own preconceptions. There's no objective standard by which the accuracy of your interpretation can be measured. You start using allegory, you can't measure against anything. There's no other text to measure. it's just your imagination. You know, this type of fantasy or interpretation lacks objectivity as well as means of validation. Here is the object, how do we validate the data? There is nothing going on. It leads to numerous views. And really, as you allegorize, you're only limited by your own imagination. That's not how we study the Bible. That's not how we gain truth from God's word. I'll give you an example. Let's um, just turn with me to, um, and this may, may form a giggle, and it's okay, we're all grown-ups here. Let's um, go to Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 5. Once again, we have the, the man just admiring the beauty of the woman And uh, we have a verse, verse 4, Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in the rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, the greys among the lilies, until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Okay, it's very poetical language, and I hear a few giggles in the congregation, that's okay. We're not used to reading this type of stuff aloud, are we? So, you know, but if you were to allegorize this, what would you say about verse 4 or verse 5? Let me give you some attempts by some people. For instance, verse 5 talks about uh, two breasts. Now, from a Jewish perspective, you would say that they actually relate to Moses and Aaron, or perhaps to the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, or perhaps to some mathematical reasoning. If you're a Christian, you might say, well, uh, this may relate to the two testaments of the Christian Bible, the Old and New Testament. Uh, It may relate to the church as a whole, or it might even relate to the two ordinances of the church, you know. Baptism and communion. Or it might just relate to the beauty of the church in the eyes of Christ. And as I've read through that, no one reason is more reasonable or plausible than another, correct? You can make those assumptions, but there's no foundational truth in the assumptions. You're allegorizing it, you're taking it away from the plain meaning of the text. I read a recently uh, a new commentary by sort of a eclectic religion, and the name of the country was called uh, New Age, right? And in, and this is a commentary on the Song of Songs, and this illustrates the point about taking allegory too far. As this book meandered through uh, the thoughts about Christ, Buddha, Krishna, and the universal God, um, they absurdly arbitrated that this whole allegory this song was about that. There's no foundation for that. You see where I'm driving with this? An allegory that is a story that is actually intended to be read as an allegory. Generally it tells the reader that it is an allegory and it's very obvious and very deliberate. I think that's all I'll say on allegory at this point in time. It was the dominant view of Song of Solomon's up till about 1750 AD. All our historical commentators would take this as allegory. And uh, that's not the view we'll take here today. Another way is uh, typology, it's similar to allegory, except for typology. Well affirm the historical setting. They say, okay, we'll take some form of, of the historical setting, but we want to shift the interpretation to mean something around the fulfillment of Christ. So they'll take the Song of Solomon and say, yeah, we understand it's a historical book. It was written in 1100 or whatever BC, but in here there must be a double meaning. There must be a meaning about fulfillment of Christ. Once again... Um, Typology, you tend to get a clue on whether types are being used in the Bible because when you read the New Testament, it will say, and it was written, and this is a type of this. Nowhere in the New Testament is Song of Songs quoted. So you could take the typology and move it to one side and say, that's not a good way of interpreting uh, this song. And the other downside of topology, what tends to happen with the double meaning side of it, is they tend to focus more on the spiritual application than the literal. And that will invite the same areas, errors as when you allegorize something. Okay. A third way of perhaps um, looking at this Song of Songs is that's a drama. It's just a drama. It's a narrative. It's a, it's a play. It's like a a Shakespearean play. And there's uh, two views on that. It's either a two person drama between Solomon and the Shulamite woman, or it's a three person drama between Solomon, the Shulamite woman, and the shepherd. Now, they're all, uh, that, that it's, a, it's a plausible view because they're looking to take the text literally. But the question's got to be asked is this actually a story? Is it a drama? Because to make it a drama, you've actually got to read into the text the characters. And what starts happening is you become far more subjective in your reading. There's um, also no historical evidence that the nation of Israel would um, have dramatic plays like this. There's no, no evidence of that at all. Also, as you read through it, if you try and play it as a drama, some of it gets really confused to identify what parts are whose. And another thing that if you play it as a drama, you also make Solomon out to be a villain. And uh, that conflicts with what actually the Bible talks about Solomon as being the exemplar of wisdom when it comes to literature. He was the all-wise. So perhaps we don't read it as a drama. I would make this suggestion that we read it as a love song. The song is poetry. As we've giggled through some of the verses today, you see wonderful imagery and wonderful metaphors. Solomon and the Shulamite are non-historical figures and are used as a poetic symbol of ideal love. Remember I talked to you about Genesis chapter 2? How the Song of Songs takes this divine gift of God's love and then explains it to us here in the Song of Songs. It's a perfect picture of intimacy, sexual union, and love. We take it as a song, we see it concerns the bride and groom and their love and discovery of one another. It's not a text of a wedding ceremony. It's not something that you would get out at every wedding and read. It's deeper than that and it's broader than that. It's concerned with the intimacy and love that has been discovered by the bride and the groom. It's a lengthy and complex song made up of many little songs and verses and things like that. So I just want to give you an overview of that if I can. For instance, some of the songs include an admiration song. We, We talked about an admiration song as either the bride or the groom look at their loved ones and they just burst out into admiration more lovely than the flock, more greater than the Tower of Babel, you know, that sort of stuff. Arms like iron. That's another way of saying he's ripped, right? That sort of stuff. So that's admiration. There's songs in here about admiration. There's songs in here about yearning. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. It's a yearning song. There's... uh, Songs in here about a rival. Uh, chapter 2, verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows. Sounds like a pervert. <laughs> Doesn't it really? <laughs> but, you know, he's, this is an arrival song. The bride is so excited about his, her beloved. He comes leaping over the mountains. And you thought Superman was a unique idea. Just needed to read the Bible. What other types of songs are in the song? Remember the song is one big song but made up of little songs. So you've got um, perhaps uh, you know, even an invitation song. And I won't go into that today, but there are invitation songs in here. There are so other sort of motifs that go through the song, and I'll just give you some of these, and you can have a, a bit of a laugh about some of this. Love sickness, clearly, love sickness is in the in the song, uh, chapter five, verse eight. Uh, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. It's part of a yearning song as well. I adjure I you, O oh daughters of Jerusalem. If you find my beloved, evidently he was lost, that you tell him, I am sick with love. How romantic would that be? If I'm late home from an elders meeting and Julie rang up and and and, and, and talked to the office and says, Have you seen my husband? I'm just sick with love. I don't think that's going to happen soon. <laughs> but you know, this is a this is a um, <laughs> love sickness. Is one of the motifs that goes through here. Um, the door is is repeatedly mentioned, and you think, well, what the hang has a door got to do with love? Well, I was talking about the door being shut and opened. I'll leave that up to your imaginations. We'll get into that. Okay. Uh, we talk about the gazelle or stag. Okay, we talked about the gazelle leaping over different things to get to his beloved and the stag. Well, who's ever seen a stag during mating season? This is the type of imagery we're getting here. It's a motif. And then we have the kiss. The song starts with that verse. Let me Kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. We have motifs around breasts, the authority figure. The garden or vineyard is a really big motif in this song. It talks about the garden in the, in the central part of the song, which starts probably in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, and goes through to five one, is just loaded with metaphors about a flourishing, spring-filled, fruitful garden. And there's other things. Uh, talks about the, the entrapment or theft of the heart. talks about horses and chariots. And limbs are described as precious metals. So there's a lot of different motifs that go on here in the song. So I'd maintain, and this is what we'll teach, that this is a love song, folks. And this is a love song that has so many concrete allusions to the anatomy and physiology of the sexes and the delights of erotic love with precise references to the senses of touch, smell, taste, sight and hearing, that you can only interpret this poetry as a literal piece of poetry designed to freshen your hearts and mind about what true love is. The song is written to celebrate erotic love within the bounds of marriage as God's good gift. However, the song is not intended just to extol love because the numerous links to wisdom literature suggest an additional purpose. This book is part of wisdom literature, okay, something I haven't mentioned to date. You've got five books of wisdom. Books of wisdom are about giving you skills to live life. The songs of songs is in that wisdom literature. So not only does it celebrate erotic love within the bounds of marriage as God's good gift, it also endeavours to teach us about the nature of intimacy. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2. And says, Becoming one flesh looks like this. To put it bluntly, I'll conclude with this. The Song of Song is really about kisses. You know, there's something pleasurable about your first kiss, is there not? That's the way God designed it. Some of you may still be waiting for your first kiss. Some of you may be longing for your first kiss. Some of you may be just fed up with kissing. (laughs) Because morning breath takes over. But to put it bluntly, the song of songs is really about kisses. It's about physical beauty. We'll see this as we read through it as these two bodies are described it is a beautiful picture of physical beauty and sexual union for instance when the song mentions female breasts it means female breasts it doesn't mean moses it doesn't mean aaron it doesn't mean the nurturing power of the of the church Folks, we need to read the Bible for what it says. When it makes common sense, seek no other sense. And this is what this song is about. However, physical sex isn't the whole story here in the Song of Songs. Transformation and intimacy are at the heart of the song. And that's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. We're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to talk about some of these funny metaphors. But at the heart of this, we want you to understand that God has designed sexual intimacy and love to be good. We want you to have a view of that, that is good. And that's our goal. If you have any questions about what has been said today, see John and Shabu. They are more than happy to field them. And I'll just go and hide myself in the study. Song team, come on up. We're going to conclude and then I'll close in prayer.